this morning we're going to continue in our series through the life of Samuel. But this morning the focus is not so much on Samuel, although we'll see references to him. We're going to focus on the priest that we were introduced to last week, and his name is Eli. Eli has two sons that we'll read about, Hophni and Phinehas. But as we uh, open up God's Word, will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us this morning, that you would teach us the things that we need to learn, that you would convict us of the things that we need to be convicted of, that you would encourage us in the ways that we need to be encouraged. Lord, I pray that you would, you would transform us as we study your word together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So this morning's story is actually quite a tragedy. We come to the text. We're going to begin in verse 11. The text is verse 11 through 36 today. It's not long after Elkanah and Hannah, the parents of Samuel, have dedicated Samuel to the Lord. They've entrusted him into the care of Eli, the high priest. But today the focus is actually on the story of Eli's own two sons. And what I want to actually do is not start in verse 11. I want to go to the end of the story to see the legacy that Eli leaves for his children and their children after that. So I'm going to read, starting, starting in verse 31, a prophet has come to Eli. And this is what he says. Behold. The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priest places that I may eat a morsel of bread. The legacy that Eli leaves is not a good one. A prophet from God has come and told Eli of the tragedies that are about to visit his descendants. And of course, all these things come true soon after the prophet visits Eli. We read ahead in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that Israel goes up to battle against the Philistines. They bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, go up to battle as well, along with 30 thousand Israelites. But what we read 
is that Israel was defeated, that the ark was captured, and both sons of Eli were killed, fulfilling the prophecy that they would die on the same day. There is a man who escapes this battle, and he brings the news to Eli. It's in chapter 4, verse 17. He comes to Eli and says, Israel had fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. So within presumably weeks or months of the prophet going to Eli, Eli is now dead. His two sons are now dead as well. Two generations later, we read in 1 Samuel 21 that Eli's great-grandson, his name is Ahimelech, he was killed by the order of King Saul, along with 85 other priests. These would have been all descendants of Eli. Doeg the Edomite is the one who carries out Saul's orders. He then goes back to the priestly city of Nob and wipes out everything and everyone, save one. Eli's great-great-grandson, his name was Abiathar. He escaped, and he actually goes to the future king, David, for refuge. David becomes king. Abiathar serves as priest to David. But when David's son rebels against his father, Abiathar deserts David, supports Adonijah, David's son, as he tries to overthrow the throne. Adonijah is unsuccessful, leaving Solomon to ban Abiathar, Eli's great-great-grandson, from the priesthood of Israel for the rest of time. We read this in 1 Kings. It says, Abiathar gets removed and he doesn't come back. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So here's the summary of what happened. Eli is dead. His two sons were killed. His great-grandson was killed. Hundreds of his descendants were killed by the Philistines at Shiloh and by Saul's men at Nob. His great-great-grandson was responsible for the priesthood being removed permanently from his family line. This is the legacy of Eli, the high priest of Israel. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy especially for a family of priests. But what if I told you that I believe all of this could have been prevented? What if I told you that all of this tragedy could be traced back to just one or two poor decisions made by a father who otherwise looked like a very spiritual man but who also had a fatal flaw. You see, I think we can all agree that Eli's legacy is not the type of legacy that we want to leave for our children or their children or their children after that. So what we're going to look at today 
is twofold. We're going to look at how Eli's story got to this point, how it got so bad. And then secondly, as we go along, we will look at principles that hopefully we can implement so we don't make the same mistakes. Now, you're going to hear a lot about the mistakes of a father, and you can make correlations. I'm going to talk about parenting a lot, but if you're not a parent, I want you to hang on and pay attention because there's still applicable truths for you today, I promise. But let's go back to the beginning of the story. We're going to look at verse 11 and 12 to begin. 1 Samuel 2.11 speaks of Samuel's parents first. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The author here over our passage today sets up this contrast between Samuel and his upbringing and the upbringing of Eli's sons. Samuel is ministering to the Lord, but the sons of Eli are described as worthless men who did not know the Lord. Now I want to just stop there for a moment and consider the weight of that statement that the sons of Eli did not know the Lord. Here are two sons of the high priest, which at this time were serving as priests themselves. They were likely between 30 and 40 years of age, but they did not know the Lord. How is it possible that two priests serving in Israel under their father, the high priest, could come to a place where it's said of them that they did not know the Lord? Because no doubt, Hophni and Phinehas grew up hearing and seeing all the right things. They grew up serving in the tent, the tabernacle, doing the ministry and the work of the Lord. They saw their father serve as priest. They knew what was expected of them. If they lived in our day, these would be like the pastor's kids who live at church, who go to Awana and memorize all the Bible verses, who wear the nice clothes to church. They know what to say and when to say it. But even so, by the time they are adults, and even here as Hophni and Phinehas served as priests, they did not know the Lord. And so this leads to our first principle as we consider how to leave a godly legacy. We must commit to win the hearts of our children. You see, there's a difference between going to church And knowing the Lord. There's a difference between posting a Bible verse out on social media and knowing the Lord. There's even a difference between serving in the work of the church and knowing the Lord. You see, you can be in all the right places, learn to say all the right things, sing the right songs, even be busy serving in the church and still not know the Lord. What Eli missed, and one of my greatest fears as a a pastor and as a father, is that we can miss the hearts of our children just because we go to church and just because we call ourselves Christians. This concept is deeply personal to me as well because over the past almost 10 years here at the chapel, I've spent a lot of time with teenagers. 
And there have been some that have grown up and graduated high school and gone off to school and gotten married and they're in churches and serving the Lord. But there are others who are walked away from the faith. It seems like there's a growing crisis in our generation of children and teenagers and young adults who are serving the Lord faithfully, who actually know the Lord. The fact that Hophni and Phinehas' hearts were far from God was evidenced in their actions. Look with me at verses 12 through 17, chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you would as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now you might not understand exactly all that's happening here if you're not very familiar with the Levitical law regarding the sacrifices. We're not going to go into much detail about the practices here, but there's two major problems that are happening in these verses. Two major sins of Hophni and Phinehas. In verses 13 and 14, Hophni and Phinehas are taking from the offering. Taking from the offering what was not theirs. You see, the law had prescribed a certain portion of the offering for the sustenance and portion of the priests. But what Hophni and Phinehas decided was that that wasn't enough for them. What the Lord had provided for them wasn't good enough for Hophni and Phinehas, so they had sent their servant to stick in a fork. And I don't think this was a little dinner fork. I think this was more like a trident. They stuck in a big pot of the offering that was offered to God, and whatever came out, they kept for themselves along with the portion that was allotted to them. And this became common practice and even accepted by the people because, after all, they were the priests and they just followed their lead. Verses 14 and 16 explain that it got worse. Eli and Phinehas decided, you know what? We don't really like boiled meat. We want roast. And so before the sacrifice was even offered, which violated every command of the Levitical law, they went and took raw portions of the meat. They didn't even burn the fat first, which was the first step in offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And they threatened whoever would say, well, wait a minute, that's not what the Lord prescribed. They threatened them and said, well, we're going to take it anyway if you don't give it to us. As a result, we read again this in verse 17 of Hophni and Phinehas. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see, it was a sin to violate these specific commands of God regarding the sacrifice. 
But as in most cases, when it comes to sin, their specific sin was only a symptom of a deeper problem. They really had a pride problem. They had an arrogance problem that led them to treat the offering of the Lord with contempt. Clearly, the sons of Eli had no regard for the law of God, no fear of the Lord. They saw the sacrifices not as a means of worshiping God, but as a means to fill their bellies. They used their power and influence, authority as priests for their own gain. They had missed the heart of the law. And only saw it as a means to an end. You see, they would have been done well to reread the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 6. I don't have time to walk through the whole chapter, but you'll find these words familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. After Moses receives the commands from God for the people of Israel to follow, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You see, God's desire was not that he would just have a people of robots that followed rules and regulations, but they would see the law for what it was, something for their good. Something that they could obey and follow and trust. And as they obeyed and followed and trusted in the Lord, they would flourish and prosper. That the obedience of God's people would be a product, a result of their love for God. And in turn, it would be written on their hearts. And if we're going to avoid the fate of Eli and his sons, if we're going to instill a godly legacy to the next generation, we must commit to reaching the hearts of our children. So how do we ensure that we are reaching the hearts of our children and not just modifying their behavior? It starts by pursuing authentic relationships with our children. We teach them that God seeks this same kind of relationship with them. In that same passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses tells these parents, you are to teach the children. But how are they to teach them? They are to walk with them and talk with them. When they lie down and when they rise up and at meals, they are to show by example that they love and follow the Lord and all His commands. This transfer of law to heart can only happen as we walk with our children in daily relationships. For the end of Deuteronomy 6, Moses points us to another truth. He anticipates a day when the children of the Lord would ask, well, why do we have to follow all of these laws, Mom? Why do we have to follow all of these laws, Dad? And what Moses does is he tells them, you know what you should do, parents? You shouldn't just tell them to obey to obey. He doesn't even tell them to tell them all the logical reasons. He says, you know what you should do? You should tell them about how when you were slaves in Egypt, the Lord brought you out. You should tell them all the wondrous signs and wonders, the great things that God had done against Pharaoh and his household. 
They should tell their children about how God had rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh, that they had brought him, that, that God had brought them into the promised land, that God was always looking out for their good, that he had preserved them throughout the generations. And so that's why we follow God's commands. Moses, in responding to children asking why, he was saying, because we know and love God. We are pointing our children to a God who loves them, a God who can be trusted because he always keeps his promises. We lead them into a relationship, not just a set of rules or traditions or expectations, but a relationship with their creator, God. The heart here for God that Hophni and Phinehas was lacking is contrasted with the heart that was being cultivated by Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah, in the next few verses. Look with me at verse number 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. We don't know much about Elkanah and Hannah. But what we do know is that they displayed their heart for the Lord. That they provided what Samuel needed to guide him and steer him in his service to the Lord. And God rewarded them for their faithfulness. And so we see Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord. Which is again about to be contrasted with the sons of Eli who are growing worse in their sins. Look with me at verse 22. Eli is about to finally confront the sins of his sons. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli finally confronts his sons. But by the time he does, his rebuke falls on deaf ears. In order to leave a godly legacy... We're going to need to commit to win the hearts of our children. But we're also going to need to commit to correct sin immediately. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, at first glance, this may seem very unfair. What do you mean it was the will of the Lord to put them to death? Did they have no choice in the matter? Was there no way that they could have ever repented? I don't believe that's the case. You see, I believe it was the case by the time Eli had the conversation. But the most likely scenario is that the fate of Hophni and Phinehas had already been sealed by their own sin and their hard hearts years and years earlier. 
So much that at some point prior to this conversation with Eli, God had given them over to their own sinful desires. This is what's played out in Romans 1. This is what we saw in the life of Pharaoh. That God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that he could not repent. But only after Pharaoh had opposed the God of Israel. There was a time that Hophni and Phinehas could have came to repentance, but that time was now past. You see, it was only after Eli learned that his sons were committing adultery by taking advantage of the women who were serving at the tent of the Lord that Eli decided to speak up. But by this time, it was too little, too late. To make matters worse, although Eli finally confronted his sons, he did not correct them. What he said was right. But he didn't follow through with any action. First Samuel 3.13 tells us this is why judgment came to Eli's house. It says, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He let the sins of his sons continue and continue and continue. And he did not restrain them. Yes, Eli at this point was old and his sons were grown men, but he was high priest. He could have had them removed from office. He could have stripped them of their priestly garments. He could have banned them from offering sacrifices. He could have had them stoned for committing adultery as the law required. But Eli did nothing. And actually what we find in the next series of verses that Eli was complicit in violating the law because he shared in the sacrifices that were stolen from God and enjoyed by his family. We read that Eli was old and heavy. Nice way of saying fat. And I think that's in the text for a reason. Why was Eli heavy? Why was Eli fat? He was stealing from the Lord and it aided in his death. I can't help but wonder how Eli's story might have been different if he sought out the heart of his children and if he corrected his son's sin the instant he knew of it, the instant he saw of it or the the instant he heard of it, that he put an end to it. That he didn't let it grow bigger and bigger. That the first time he heard of it, he went to his sons and said, Son, this is wrong. You are sinning against the people of Israel. You are sinning against me. And most importantly, you are sinning against God. What would have happened if Eli would have put an end to it the first time? I can almost guarantee you that we would not be reading this terrible legacy. But by the time he spoke up, it was too little, too late. They were grown men who had become hardened to the things of God and had no respect for their father. Discipline is not a fun word. Discipline is not a fun word, and many parents, including this one, struggles to find that balance of discipline in the home. We're not going to get into detail about all that it looks like. We don't have the time for that today, but I do want to point out Two verses from Proverbs 13 that speaks to the value of discipline, if not the method. Proverbs 13:18 says, Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. 
And what that means is that discipline is a means to lead children down the right path. We want our children to take heed of reproof. Whoever spares the rod, Proverbs 3.24 says, hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. More important than the method of discipline here, we learn that discipline proves you love your children. We must commit to correct sin immediately. An acknowledgement or even confrontation is not enough. There must be consequences for sin. Eli brought judgment on his house because he turned a blind eye to the sin in his own home. There's lots more that can be said there. But I think we want to commit to correct sin immediately. And that looks different in different contexts, in different times, in different homes. But we cannot let sin have a foothold in our homes as Christians. Once more in verse 18, we have the contrast again of Samuel. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So we come to our last section of Scripture, bringing us back to just before where we started. Why the prophet was sent. Because Eli neglected the discipline and the nurture of his sons. Verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in, in, in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? You know, God does for Eli what Moses prescribed fathers to do, that Eli neglected to do. He brings them back to the faithfulness and character of God. Did I not reveal myself to Aaron when I had him assist Moses? Did I not reveal myself to your descendants as I led them out of Egypt? Did I not reveal and give you privilege and status as priest? He says in verse 29, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves? including Eli, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Ultimately, this is Eli's most grievous sin. Verse 29, he honored his sons above God. This is our third principle. We must commit to honor God above all else. Because Eli didn't, God brings corresponding judgment to the house of Eli. I'm not going to go through and read the passage that we began with for the sake of time, but I'll just show you how the judgments correspond. In verse 30, Eli did not honor the Lord, and now the Lord is going to disregard Eli and his household. The sons had abused the people, Now, verse 31, the Lord was cutting off their strength and their power. Eli was old, but verse 32, there will not be an old man in Eli's house forever. Verse 33, they didn't 
regard the Lord's power. So now they would die by the sword. Verse 36, they took the choices, the most choice meats from the people of Israel, more importantly from God, and they would be reduced to begging for just a morsel of bread. Eli's choice to ultimately honor his son over God led to the falling of generations. In our culture today, there is a great pressure to make your children happy, to give them everything their heart desires, not just what they need, but all that they want. But if in doing so, we sacrifice keeping God in his rightful place, we are doing incomprehensible damage to our children. I was reading this week, I came across this one quote sentence. What I do for my children is not as important as what I leave in them. We must think through what messages that we are sending our children about who we want them to become and what is most important in their life. Is it sports? Is it academics? Is it a particular career, a happy and comfortable life? Or is it to be godly? To love them with all their hearts and souls and mind and strength. To follow God wherever that may take them. As Christians, we must leave in them a sense of honor and love for our God. Even in the midst of this chaos and this judgment, there's hope in verse 35. God has not abandoned his people. And he once again shows mercy to the house of Israel. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Mercy is promised to Israel is promised to God's people despite its failing leaders. The ministry and work of the Lord continues on. This verse found fulfillment when Abiathar, Eli's great-great-grandson, was expelled from the priesthood by Solomon and replaced by Zadok. The priestly line returned to the house of Eleazar, son of Aaron, through the ninth generation descendant, and that's Zadok. He served both David and Solomon at the temple. And it's his lineage that continued all the way up until the time of Christ. So we see the immediate fulfillment where the house of Eli is no longer priest, but it shifts to Eli's uncle's line, Eleazar, and continues until Christ. Matthew Henry says this, It has its full accomplishment in the priesthood of Christ. That merciful and faithful high priest whom God raised up when the Levitical priesthood was thrown off, who in all things did the Father's mind, and for whom God will build a sure house, build it on a rock, so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We must commit to honor God above all else. And so there's one more principle this morning that isn't found explicitly in the text. 
Surely, all of, we can see parallels with parenting here, and we'll talk about that in a second. But even if you're not a father or grandfather or parent, even if you don't have children or don't have children yet, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. You see, these first three principles are not just to be taught to our children. Actually, they're to first be lived out in our hearts and lives first. We must commit to give our hearts to the Lord wholly. We must commit to eliminate sin in our lives as soon as we know of it. We must commit to honor God above all else. This is the call for everyone who considers themselves a Christian. But lastly, we all ought to commit to being a godly influence. Everyone has a sphere of influence. And everyone then can use that influence to point others to Christ. The ultimate fulfillment on God's mercy on the house of of Israel. Listen, I need help as a parent. I need help as I strive to show my children the faith. And I would wager that most young parents in our church could use some help. We could use some volunteers in children's ministry, in the nursery, in children's church. We want to start Sunday school soon, but we're short on volunteers. You, Godly generations have a chance to influence future generations in your service as you help shape the hearts and minds of the children growing here in this church. Grab a young family. Call them up. Invest them. Invest in them. Get to know their children. Be an encouragement to them. Seek out some of the children and teenagers in our church. Build relationships with them. Because this is how we show them God. I need help raising my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I need some help just figuring out how to do the whole parenting thing. I'm sure there's a lot of godly advice out there for young fathers, for young husbands, for young mothers, for young wives. Some of you have this wisdom that needs to be imparted to the next generation. I would give you the same, implore you with the same advice. Reach out to a young family. Reach out to someone that could use some godly counsel. Someone to talk with. Someone to open up to. Someone to pray with. Someone to walk with. Especially if you've been there before. If it's not with young children, or young families here within this church, you certainly have an obligation to influence anyone else in your sphere. Ultimately, it's our mission here to make disciples. And hopefully we're making disciples who are making disciples. And in order to do that, we're intentionally going to have to form relationships with the people we know in order to show them our God. We should commit to being a godly influence. And one last remark as we end. Committing to these four things. You could do everything right 
And this isn't a guarantee of godly children. But I can pretty much guarantee you, if you ignore these things, you are setting up your children for failure. And so what do you do if you find yourself in the place of a wayward son or a wayward daughter, grandson or granddaughter, and you're saying, I did the best I could. And I'm concerned for my child or my grandchild or my neighbor or their kids. What should you do? Very briefly, number one, don't stop praying. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for those who you know are lost. Number two, continue to pursue a relationship with them. Because through a relationship with them, we get to express and show the love and grace of God. Pursue a relationship with them. Number three, the hardest on the list maybe, own up to your past failures and mistakes. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Your kids know that. Your grandkids know that. Own up to that. And then give it to the Lord. Rely on His grace. Trust in His mercy. But it's okay to be transparent, to ask forgiveness, and even repent when necessary, even to your children. And lastly, trust in the Lord. Even when you don't see or understand His plan, trust in the Lord. Trust in His promises. Trust in His goodness. Trust in His character. That He is still at work. And He is working in you and through you for your good and His ultimate glory. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I'm thankful that we don't have to be perfect because we can't be perfect, but we have and trust in a perfect Savior. Lord, I know we don't commit to these four areas perfectly every day, but I pray that you would challenge us in these areas, that we would commit to give our hearts to you wholly, that we would eliminate sin as soon as we see it evident in our lives, that we would commit to honoring you above all else, that we would commit to influencing those around us for your sake, for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us follow you well, that we would be proud of the legacy that we are leaving our children as we trust in you to work out everything in your good plan. We pray these things in your name.